0: In our previous year, we started to discuss the idea of body and soul, of the relationship between the physical and the spiritual world. Now, I'd like to take it a step further in this year, and let's start with a very famous Midrash. The Midrash says that when Rivka would pass the base Midrash, Yaakov would try to get out of the womb, he'd start jumping around. And that when Rivka passed the base Avodah the place where they served Avodah Zarah, Esav would start jumping around and try to get out of the womb. And Rashi quotes the Medrash that even in the womb, there was a battle between Yaakov and Esav. It was a battle between two worlds, between the spiritual world and the physical world. That Esav wanted the physical world, and Yaakov wants the spiritual world. Now there's a very famous question when it comes to this Medrash. The question is based on the following problem. When person A wants one thing, and person B wants another thing, a different thing, there's not a machlokes. there's an agreement. For example, if there was a vanilla ice cream and a chocolate ice cream, and I wanted the vanilla and you wanted the chocolate, there wouldn't be a machlokas, there would be an agreement. i take the vanilla, you take the chocolate. But if there's only one ice cream, let's say there's only vanilla, and we both want vanilla, then you have machlokas. But if Yaakov wanted the spiritual world, and Esav wanted the physical world, then you don't have a machlokas, you have an agreement. So what's this machlokas? Why doesn't Yaakov take the spiritual world, and Esav will take the physical world? You have an agreement. So we need to try to understand this, Medrash. The second question revolves around the idea of Yom Kippur. In Yom Kippur, we seem to remove ourselves from the physical world. We don't eat, we don't have matter relations, we don't wash ourselves, we don't do anything physical. And the theme of Yom Kippur is becoming like Malachim. That's why we wear white. That we are transcending the physical world. And seemingly, this isn't the theme of the rest of the year. Right after Yom Kippur itself, we have Sukkot, which is a very physical holiday. It's the Chak Hasimcha. Zman Simcha We have the Simcha Spes We sit in the sukkah and eat food It's a very physical holiday, And you have this theme reoccurring throughout Judaism Where we engage the physical world On Shabbos we eat, we eat lots of food And we seem to uplift the physical world So the question which I'd like to put on the table Is are we supposed to be transcending the physical world? Are we supposed to be ascetic? Or are we supposed to be embracing and engaging the physical world and using the physical world? Next question regards shoes. There's this very interesting halacha, which is that on Yom Kippur, you're not allowed to wear shoes. Now, there's this theme reoccurring in Machshava about shoes. For example, when Moshe first heard the voice of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he was supposed to take off his shoes. Now, there's a very interesting question in addition to this, which is what's the difference between Moshe and Yoshua? The modern points out the distinction between Moshe and Yeshua by saying that Moshe took off both of his shoes, but the Pasuk says that Yeshua only took off one of his shoes. What's the difference between taking off both of your shoes and taking off only one shoe? Also, the Kohanim take off their shoes when they dochen. Why do they take off their shoes? To take this question a step further, let's ask what Chalitza what has to do with shoes. Chalitza is a very special halacha. If a man and wife are married And the husband dies Without having any children Then there's a mitzvah For the husband's brother To marry The deceased man's wife And to have a child With that woman That's the mitzvah of yibum. Chalitza Is when the dead man's brother Refuses to marry his wife And in such a case She takes off the shoe And she spits over it And that I mean, there's a whole on what exactly that does, but then they are no longer connected, there's no marriage, and the husband's brother is putter from doing yibo. Now the question is, why is she spitting over his shoe? What does that have to do with anything? So this is a very conceptual question, which is, what's the idea of shoes? What's the idea of taking off shoes? The last question is based on a very interesting Madrash which says that the Avos and Sadikim are a Merkava, a Kava is a chariot, that they are a chariot for Baruch Hu. What does it mean to be a Merkava? What does it mean to be a chariot for Hashem into this world? What does that have to do with anything? So those are our basic questions. Number one, what is the real machokas between Yaakov and Yisov? Number two, what's the essence of Yom Kippur? Is that the paradigm? Are we supposed to be transcending the physical world? And furthermore, why are we taking off our shoes? What's this idea of shoes? Why do we take off our shoes in all these different interesting situations? Number three, what does it mean to be a Merkava, a chariot for Hashem? So let's start by building off of what we started to develop in last year. And last year we started to develop the idea that you are a neshama. You don't have a neshama, you are a neshama. And what that means is that you are a mind, a consciousness, an awareness. And you can use your intellect, you can use your emotions, and you can use your body. That's the basic idea of what we started to develop in last week's year. Now, let's start to take this a step further. How are you supposed to be using all of these different things? And how do many people misuse them? Let's first discuss how people misuse these three different categories. One person can be stuck in his body. He can be a slave to his body, which means that you are a slave to your physical urges. If you have an urge to eat something, you eat it. If you have a sexual urge, then you just are unable to control it. Your body, your bodily urges control you. So whenever you have any taiva, any urge, you have no control over it. It controls you. There's another type of person that's controlled by his emotions. However he feels, that's how he acts. If he gets up and he feels sad or depressed, then he feels and acts sad and depressed. If, let's say, he wakes up and he feels happy, then he's happy. If, let's say, a person wakes up and he's feeling very tired, Then he just says that, that's it, I'm tired. If he's feeling awake, he's awake. Whatever he feels, that's how he lives. He is not in control of his emotions. He's controlled by his emotions. So if he's feeling sad, then that determines how he's going to live. He has no control over it. His emotions control him. There's another type of person who lives in his intellect. For example, a lot of academics, even some tamini chachemim, they're just complete intellect. They don't have any emotions, they don't have any physical urges, they just completely remove themselves from those things, and they're just intellect. That's it. But the ideal, the absolute ideal, is to be in control of all three, where you, you are a consciousness, a mind, and you're using your intellect, you're using your emotions, and you're using your body to fulfill your purpose in the world. Now this sounds very nice, but what does it actually mean to be using all three of these things? So the Vilna Gon explains beautifully that there needs to be a top-to-down flow, meaning that you need to start with developing your mind, developing your intellect. The root, the starting point, is the MS. It's the truth. It's the intellectual ideas of truth. What are you supposed to be doing in the world? Who are you supposed to be? What's the MS? What's the halacha? The MS... Or the intellect, so to speak It needs to be the starting point And it then needs to control your emotions And then that needs to control your actions So for example, and we discussed this very briefly in the first year The basic theme is that you need to control how you think Which will then control how you feel Which will then control how you act and live That's the basic paradigm So let me give you a very quick but very important, Marshall, just to describe this idea. You have a child who is sitting in his kitchen, and he starts to hear this thumping sound on the upstairs window. He thinks that there's a robber breaking into his house. He feels terrified. And what does he do? What's his action? He hides underneath the kitchen table. So remember, he thought there was a robber. His thoughts made him feel terrified. And he acted based on that fear, by hiding underneath the table. His older brother then comes over to him and says, don't worry, it's just raining outside, and the wind's blowing, and the the branches of the tree are just knocking against the window. So then the kid thought that there's no longer any danger. He felt relief, and what did he do? What was his action? That's right, he came out from underneath the table. So your thoughts affect your emotions, which affect how you live, which affect your actions. The goal is to develop your mind so that you feel differently and you act differently. If you think Hashem has nothing to do with you, you'll feel like your life has very little meaning and you won't live a motivated life of avodah Hashem. But if you think in a different way, then you can feel differently and you can start acting differently. And the Vilna Gun says this is the depth of being a melech of your own life, of being a king, of, of being in control of your life. What's a melech? Melech is mem, lamed, chaf. Mem is moach, lamed is lev, and chaf is kaved. The brain, the heart, and the liver. You need to start with your thoughts, the moach, controlling your thoughts. That will affect your lev, how you experience the world. And then that will hopefully determine how the kavod is. First of all, kavod means heavy, but literally the lowest, it's in the most physical part of your body, and it's where the blood is created. The kavod represents how you manifest yourself into the world, which is the deep idea of kavod. Kavod is how other people perceive you, That's your honor, how other people look at you. That's a whole other topic which we're not going to really develop right now. But the deep idea is that there needs to be a top-down flow. You start with your thoughts. That will hopefully affect your emotions. And then it will hopefully affect how you live your life. These three categories of thought, followed by emotion, followed by action, is a very deep theme. If you want to sum up most of Judaism in just a few sentences you can say that you learn Torah to know what Hashem wants, that's the intellect, you daven to want what Hashem wants, that's avodas haliv, developing your ratzon, developing what you want, wanting what Hashem wants, as Seirat Son chak now, and then you do the mitzvos to live what Hashem wants. So learning, that's the mind, tefillah, that's the lave, and mitzvos, that's action, represents these three categories of intellect, emotion, and action. So the purpose of life is to know the truth, to want the truth, and to live the truth. And that's the deep, deep episode of Melech, of Moach, Leven, So now let's start to talk about how to develop these different categories. The most fundamental point is to be searching for the truth, to be developing your mind, to change the way you think, to constantly be evolving in your depth perception, how you're looking at the world, in your relationship with Hashem, in terms of how deep you're going into sugyz that you're learning, in terms of how deep you're developing your mind. But what people have a lot of difficulty with is controlling their emotions. The idea would be to think and know the truth, and to want that truth too, to feel inclined and to feel drawn towards living that truth. But practically many people aren't there yet. Their knowledge hasn't become so deeply ingrained that they actually live it, that they actually want it. But rather the intellect remains separate. So for example, if you wake up in the morning, you might know that you should get up for chakras, But that's not going to be very helpful because you don't want to get up for chakras. You might feel tired. I mean, everyone gets up in the morning, and the first thought that comes up is, oh man, it's cold out there. Or, oh, what I could do for another 30 minutes of sleep. And your needs starts playing games with you. You start thinking that, oh, if I got another 30 minutes of sleep, I would have a much better day. I would have a much more productive day. And then eventually you rationalize to the point that it's a myth to go back to sleep. That if I got another 30 minutes of sleep, I would be such a better Evan Hashem today. I would learn so much better. I would get so much more done. Oh my gosh, I definitely have to go back to sleep. So your influence tells you one thing, you should go back to sleep, and your emotions, what you want, starts playing games with you. And starts saying, oh man, you don't want to get up. So for many people, it's not enough to know the truth. Because that knowledge hasn't yet become so ingrained. So there's a much more practical way of achieving success, which is doing the truth, meaning living the truth, even though you don't yet want it. So for example, you might know that you should be kind to someone, but you don't like him, so you don't want to be nice to him. Or you might know that you should get up for chakras, but you don't want to. So the Rambam, the Chinuch, the Mishish Sharm, which is the, written by the Ramchal, all famously say that... Even if you don't want to do something, you have, you should do it, and your want, your inner self will follow your actions. Meaning that if you don't like someone, be nice to him, and you'll start to like him. If you don't want to learn, throw yourself into learning, and you'll start to want to learn. If you don't want to have, him, throw yourself into it, and once you start doing the right thing, then you'll start feeling drawn towards it. So you can start top-down, which is the ideal, which is that you know the truth, and then you want the truth, and you live the truth. But for many people, even though they know it, they're not at the stage where they will then want it, so they have to start doing it and living the truth, even though they're not there yet, which is a very deep idea in Judaism. It's very much connected to the idea of nasa and Nishma. But the principle is that once you start doing the right thing, you start to really enjoy it. For example, if you've ever started to really grow in any dimension of your life, it's very enjoyable. If you start to become a better person, it's very enjoyable. You feel so great about yourself. So now let's just take a step back and quickly summarize what we've developed so far. You are a neshama, you are a mind, a consciousness, and you have intellect, you have emotions, and you have a body, and your job in life is to search for the truth, use your intellect to know the truth, and then to live that truth, to live a life of truth. But now we need to think for a moment, where does the flow really start from? According to the Vilna goan, the flow starts from the Moach, from the brain, from the intellect, and it works its way downwards. But as the Vilna Goan and everyone else explains, the flow doesn't really start from the intellect. The flow begins with Hashem. Meaning the Hashem is the source of you. Hashem is the starting point. And the MS is trying to connect yourself to the truth of what Hashem wants. Developing your intellect is developing a sense of what Hashem wants. But the first step is to realize that Hashem is the source of everything in your life. The first step is to realize that Hashem is the start of the flow. So just think about your own life. You've been thinking your whole life, but where does your ability to think come from? You've been choosing your whole life, but where does your ability to choose come from? You've been breathing your whole life. Where do you get the ability to breathe from? Your heart has been beating your whole life. I don't know about you, but I don't beat my own heart. So the first step is to realize that Hashem is the source. Hashem is the starting point. Hashem is the absolute root. Hashem created everything. Hashem is the source of everything. The next step is to realize that your job in life is to reflect Hashem into this world. You're built with the potential of being like Hashem. But your job in this world is to bring that potential into this world, to become a reflection of Hashem into the world. And that's the depth of a mitzvah. The Maharal explains that a mitzvah is not doing what Hashem wants, but it comes from a lot of tzavta, a connection. Because when you do Hashem's mitzvahs, when you do Hashem's will, then you're becoming connected to Hashem. And you're bringing Hashem down into this world. And that's the Midrash that we start out with. What does the Midrash say? That tzaddikim are the Merkava for Hashem into the world. A Merkava is a chariot. Because tzaddikim bring Hashem down into the world by fulfilling His will. So when you fulfill the Mishnah and Avos of Asiritson No, when you make Hashem's will your will, you not only fulfill His will, but you become connected to Him. And you bring Hashem down into this world. Now a person with ego thinks he's completely independent of Hashem, thinks that he has nothing to do with Hashem, the only thing he wants is for Hashem not to interfere with his life. But a person who's willing to negate his ego is able to realize that Hashem is the source of everything in his life, that you choose what to do with what Hashem gives you, but Hashem is constantly giving you everything, and that everything in your life is only because Hashem wants it and only because Hashem chooses to give it to you. The mashallah I like to give is the difference between a cellular phone and a cord phone. Many people think that they're cellular phones. They think they're completely disconnected from a higher world, disconnected from Hashem. They're walking in this world independent. But someone who's built depth realizes that there's an invisible cord, that you are connected to Hashem, and the Hashem is constantly giving you life. The Nefesh Chaim explains that Hashem creates the world constantly. It's not like Hashem created the world and removed Himself from it, but Hashem is constantly willing the world into existence. And everything in your life is because Hashem is willing it into being, not because it's just happening, and if Hashem just doesn't interfere, everything will go well, but that everything that happens in your life is because it's the rest on Hashem. So now let's take the next step. The next step is to take the idea of this top-down flow, that the flow starts from Hashem, but it's ultimately to first connect yourself to the intellect, first to know the truth, and then to live the truth, let's take a step further and try to understand the essence of Yom Kippur. What is the essence of Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur seems to be a day of transcendence, where we don't eat, which hopefully we'll give a share on that in in the near future, on the depth of eating, how eating connects you to your body, that if you don't eat for long enough, you get, start to get very faint, and if you continue to fast, then eventually you will leave your body. The neshama will leave the body. So we don't eat in Yom Kippur because we start to, to remove ourselves from our body just a little bit. We start to transcend the body. But there seems to be this idea of shoes. What's this idea of removing your shoes on Yom Kippur? And how does it relate to the idea of somewhat transcending the physical body and becoming like a malach? Why do we remove our shoes? So the Nefesh HaChayim explains so beautifully that the relationship between a neshama and the body is the same relationship between the foot and the shoe. How so? Because the foot is the lowest part of the body and it fits itself into the shoe. The same way that the lowest part of the body fits itself into the shoe, the Nefesh explains that the lowest part of you, your neshama, fits into your body. And that's the idea of a na'al. A na'al is a shoe, but it also means to lock, because your shoe locks your foot into place, but your body is a way for your neshama to lock itself into the physical world as well, lock itself into the physical body. Now just like the shoe is how you walk around the world, the body is how the neshama walks around the world. But the idea becomes so deep, because what does it mean to take off your shoe? The Nefesh Achayim explains that it means when you start to transcend your physical body, You're walking out of your shoes. And that's the whole idea of Yom Kippur. In Yom Kippur, we completely remove ourselves from physical activity. We don't wear shoes. We remove our shoes, but we don't eat. We don't have marital relations. We don't wash ourselves with oil. We don't wash our hands. The entire point of Yom Kippur is transcending the physical body so that we can be like Malachim. And that's also the deep idea of Moshe Rabbeinu taking off his shoes when he talked to Hashem by the snap. Because at every point where we're having a transcendent relationship with Hashem, where we're removing ourselves from our bodies, we're connecting to a higher dimension. In all those situations, we take off our shoes. That's why Moshe took off his shoes. Now we can also understand the difference between Moshe Rabbeinu and Yehoshua. Why does the Apostle say that Moshe Rabbeinu took off his shoes, but Yehoshua only took off one shoe? The Mahabim explains that Moshe completely transcended his body. Moshe was able to get to a much higher level. For example, when Moshe was receiving the Torah on, on Harsinai, the Gemara explains that Moshe Abinu didn't sleep for 40 days, and he didn't eat or drink for 40 days either, completely transcending the physical world. But Yeshua, while he was completely transcendent, didn't transcend to the same extent that Moshe Abinu did. And now we can also understand why the Kohanim take off their shoes when they dochen, and why they took off their shoes when they're doing the Avod and the Besa Because when they're connecting to a higher dimension, when they're, doing, when they're doing the Avodah, they take off their shoes. We need to develop in a much deeper way what the Besam hamikdash was, what was really going on in the Besam hamikdash, and hopefully we're going to do that in the near future. But for now, we'll just say that the Besam hamikdash is where Hashem connects down to the physical world. So when the Kohanim are connecting to Hashem, they're transcending the physical world, they would take off their shoes. Now we can take a step further and try to understand the deep idea of Chalitza. What is the idea of chalitza? Why does the woman take off the other man's shoe and spit over it when doing chalitza? So first we need to understand the deep idea of children. Children are an extension of the parents. They're physical extensions of the parents. They're half of the male genetic code, half of the female genetic code. But they're also spiritual continuations of the parent. The av, the parent is the root. And the toldos, the children are like branches coming out of the root, so every child is an extension of the neshama of the parent. That's why the Gemara talks about children It says, karadavua. A son is the foot of his father. Because a child carries a parent through the world even after the parent dies. But what about a case where a parent didn't have any children? He has no one to carry him through the world after he dies. He has no continuation. He has no extension of him living on the world. So in such a case, we have the halacha of yibum, which is that the dead husband's brother will marry the dead husband's wife, and in such a case, they'll bring a child down into the world, which will be an extension of the dead husband. So now let's just take a moment to ask, what was the first case of yibum in the Torah? That's right, it was the case of Yehuda and Tamar. Now, without getting into all the details Because we can really give a sheer on this It's a fascinating discussion A fascinating episode in Tanakh But just to quickly go through the story Yehuda had a couple of sons And the first son married Tamar But had an inappropriate relationship with her So he died So then Yehuda's second son Performed Yibum with Tamar But what happened is That he also had this inappropriate relationship with Tamar So he also died but now Yehuda was a little concerned because he thought maybe all of Tamar's husbands were dying. Maybe it was Tamar and not the husbands. He obviously didn't know what was happening because Tamar was extremely tznuah and didn't tell him the inappropriate things that, uh, that her husbands were doing. So Yehuda thought it was because of Tamar and he didn't really want to give his third son to Tamar. So he told Tamar, wait till he gets older and then I'll give you him. But when the third son got to be of age and Yehuda didn't give him to Tamar, Tamar starts to get a little worried. So Tamar realized Yehuda is not going to give me this third son. So Tamar had Navua. The Chazal tell us that Tamar knew that Mashiach would come from her relationship with Yehuda. So she dressed up as a zona and she had a relationship with Yehuda. Now the obvious question—well, there's two questions. Number one is how is this yibum? Yibum is usually with the brother of the deceased husband. So the Ramban explains that before Ma'at Torah, even the father could perform Yibam. Even the extended family could perform Yibam. But the second question is who is they' performing Yibim for? Remember, Yibam brings down the neshama of the deceased husband. But there are two deceased husbands here that don't have any children. So who is Yehudu going to perform Yibam for? So what's the answer? That's right. Both. The Torah says that Tamar had twins. Because Yehudu brought down a chilek of the neshama of both of his deceased children. So that's the deep idea behind gibum. What's chalitza? Now we can start to connect the dots. So what's chalitza? Chalitza is where the dead husband's brother refuses to marry the woman, which means that he's refusing to provide a body, or like you we were explaining, a shoe, for her husband's neshama to extend into the world. So she takes off his shoe and spits it out disgust. Now why she spits over it is a very, very deep idea which gets into the concept of what the mouth represents and what spit is, but we don't have time to really delve into that right now. But the point should be so obvious that he is refusing to provide a body for her her husband's neshama, which obviously, like we were explaining, represents a shoe. So she takes off his shoe as a sign of disgust for what he's prevented her from doing. So now that we understand the concept of shoes and what it means to take off a shoe, and we understand that in Yom Kippur we are transcending the physical world, let's go back to our original question. Let's ask: Is the paradigm, is the goal of Judaism to transcend the physical world, or is it to go into the physical world and use it? And the answer is: You need it both. You first need to transcend the physical so that you're not a slave to the physical. You're not stuck inside the physical, but you're beyond it. And then you can come down and use it. If someone is stuck by the physical, he needs to eat. He thinks with his stomach, or he thinks by his urges. And he's just ingrained within it, then he won't be able to use the physical world properly. He'll be a slave to it. Whatever his urges tell him to do, that's what he's going to do. But the goal is to first remove yourself So that you can be beyond Those temptations You can be beyond the physical world And you can then come back down and use it So for example We first have Yom Kippur Where we transcend the physical world But now that we've transcended Now that we're beyond those temptations Now that we're not a slave to the physical world We can now come back down and use it Which is why Sukkot right after Yom Kippur Is such a physical holiday Where we embrace the physical world We have Simchas Beis HaShoiva We have so many meals in the Sukkah It's zman simchaseinu. So the first step is to transcend the physical. The next step is to then go back down and have control so we can use the physical world. That's such a deep and important idea. That's why precious is never the goal, but it's the means. You need precious so you can separate yourself from the physical, so you're not a slave to the physical, so that the next step can be even more ideal, that you can come back down and use the physical world. Now there's a famous Mishnah in Avos that says that in order to be Kona Torah, you have to be able to sleep on the floor, you have to be able to just live off of bread, salt and water, and other extreme examples of precious. So the question is, what does that mean? You have to be a Porish. You have to completely remove yourself from the physical world, otherwise you won't be able to be konatora. But the answer is so beautiful, which is that you have to be able to sleep on the floor, to live off of bread, salt, and water, meaning that you can't be a slave to the physical world. It's not saying that the only way to be conant is if you do these things, but you have to be able to. Someone who needs physical things is a slave to the physical world. But when you're able to transcend those limitations, when you no longer need them, you're no longer a slave to them, now you can come and use them. Precious is a means to an end. You completely remove yourself so that you can come down and use the world. Use the physical world. That's the ideal. This is also the really deep idea behind why matzah is a food of slavery, but also a food of freedom. Why did we have matzah when we were slaves, and we also had matzah when we were freed? We had matzah the night before we left Mitzrayim, when we were slaves, but we also had matzah as we left Mitzrayim, which is the food of freedom. And if you look at the Seder night, we have matzah, which represents slavery. We also have matzah, which represents freedom. So which one is it? Freedom or Slavery. It seems to be very confusing, but the answer is so obvious, is that when we were slaves, all we could have was matzah. But when we were freed, all we needed was matzah. Because when we were slaves, we wanted food, we wanted to have delicacies, but we couldn't. But when we were freed, when we gained spiritual freedom, we no longer needed delicacies, meaning that we were freed from physical temptation. That we can now come down and use the physical world, which is why we don't have matzah all year round. Which is why on Shavuos we bring a carbon of lechem. Because we can use the physical world. But the key is to realize that you can only use the physical world. You can't be used by the physical world. You have to control the physical. You can't be controlled by the physical. And this is the deep idea that you need to transcend so that you can come back down and use transcend the physical so that you can come back down and use the physical. But what's the absolute ideal? What would be the absolute best situation? Let's ask a very interesting question. Is Hashem completely beyond the physical world? Is He transcendent? Or is He within the physical world? Is He he eminent? Is He within the physical? Which one is it? Is He beyond or is He within? But the deep answer is that's both. Hashem is completely transcendent. As we'll explain later, Yud Kivavke, the name of Yud Kivavke represents the fact that Hashem is completely transcendent of this world. But the name Elohim represents the fact that Hashem is completely imminent within the physical world. That He's beyond, but He also is within. The same is with us. We have to be beyond the physical. We can't be a slave to the physical, but then we have to also be able to come back down and use. But even when we come back down, we still remain somewhat above. We're not, we're not ingrained in the physical, but we use the physical. The nishama is not ingrained within the body. It's not stuck in the body. It's there to use the body. The body is a tool. The ikr is the neshama, but the body is the tool for the nishama to use so that it can manifest itself into the world. In order to speak Torah, you need your body. You need to speak in order to do anything in the world. In order to do mitzvot, you need to use your body. But the body can't become the ichor. The ichor always needs to be the deep, deep source within. It needs to be the spiritual. That needs to be the root, the ichor, and the source. Now we can finally try to understand the machlokas between Yaakov and Esav in the future will delve into this machlokas in a much much deeper way but today we can start to understand at least the beginning of the machlokas between Yaakov and Esav because if all Yaakov really wanted was the spiritual world and all Esav really wanted was the physical world we wouldn't have a machlokas we would have an agreement Yaakov would take the spiritual Esav would take the physical but the depth of this machlokas is so deep because they both wanted both worlds but here was what the machlokas really was Yaakov wanted both, but the ikr for Yaakov was the spiritual world. Yaakov wanted the physical world, Yaakov wanted the physical so that he can use it to reflect the spiritual. The ikr, the root, the main part is going to be the content, the spiritual, the neshama. But the physical world, the body, is going to be used to reflect the spiritual. The ikr is the spirit, the tofel, and the tool is the physical. But Esau didn't care about the spiritual. All he wanted was the animation for the body. For Esau, the ichor, all life was about for Esau is the physical. He wanted the sensual sensation. He wanted the physical sensation. He just wanted to enjoy the physical world. Why did he want the spirit? Not because of the spiritual world. Not because of the essence. Not because of the deep wisdom. Because he just wanted to animate his body. For him, the soul is just an animation for the body. A body itself is flesh. He knows that. He needs the spirit. He needs the animation to his body. But the animation is just so he can live a hedonistic physical life. For Yaakov, it's the opposite. Yaakov wants to use this physical to reflect this spiritual. And we'll develop this hopefully in the future. But this is the main theme. You need to transcend the physical so that you can come down and use it. The ideal, the highest ideal, is to be able to use the physical world, to use the body properly, not to be used by it. Yom Kippur is where we transcend, but only so that we can now come back down and use it. Yaakov wanted to use the physical. Esav wanted the physical as an ends. He doesn't want the physical to reflect anything higher. He just wants to use the physical world as an ends in itself. Our goal in life is to be like Yaakov. It's to be in control of the physical, to use the physical as a reflection of something higher. And hopefully in the upcoming Shiram, we're going to start to delve deep into the idea of what it means to use the physical to reflect the spiritual. And we're going to start to develop an understanding of what we mean when we see the spiritual world. And of what we mean when we see that the physical world can reflect the spiritual world.